in our third week going through the book of Philippians, and today we're going to begin in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Last week, if you were here with us last week, we took verses 12 through 26, and we walked slowly through Philippians 1, 12 through 26. And uh, just to give you guys a really fun little update, I had the amazing privilege this past week of spending some time with, my, with one of my spiritual fathers, uh, a man that I've known for 23 years. He is the executive, he's one of the vice presidents of a fellowship of churches, and he oversees the South Central region, which is about five states, and they held a regional conference on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And he asked me to come in to speak to about 150 pastors, missionaries, and leaders. And one of the things that, uh, that he asked me to do is just encourage and strengthen a lot of these ministers that have been weary and have been tired. And so most of the times when I go into situations like this, I just ask the Lord for a fresh word. I say, Lord, give me a fresh, piping hot word that is going to be relevant and real for the people that are in that situation. And you know what the Lord gave me? He gave me last week's message. Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 26, and, uh, and what the Lord just revealed is these guys need to put their eyes back on the gospel, and they need to put their eyes back on what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so, man, we as the people of Antioch, you guys sent me as your representative. You didn't even know that. And, uh, man, we broke down Philippians 1, 12 through 26 to about 150 pastors and leaders, and, man, those guys were charged. So praise God for that, huh? All right, here we go. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. And if you recall, last week, Paul begins Philippians 1, 12 by letting the believers of the church of Philippi know what the state of his affairs are. This is a friendship letter. One of the predominant themes in the book of Philippians is the theme of partnership. Paul views the church at Philippi in a way that he doesn't view any of the other churches. These are some of his dearest and his nearest friends. And characteristic of friendship letters in the ancient world, Paul starts off in verse 12 and he says, I want you to know what has been going on with me. But then he changes gears in verse 27 and he says, now I want to address some things that are going on with you. I've heard some things, guys, that are happening in the church of Philippi, and we got to talk. We have to talk, because they've not gotten too bad yet. You're not like the church of Corinth yet. You're not like, you know, the churches in the region of Galatia yet, but there are some things that we've got to speak into in order to keep you from getting to that place of outright devastation and division. So he begins in chapter 1, verse 27, and he says, whatever happens. Now, what's he talking about here? If you recall from last week, verses 12 through 26, Paul is agonizing over the reality of his situation that he's in prison. And he knows that there's only two options, that he's either going to be released or he's going to be executed. And this is where he says, if I am released, it means that I'm going to continue to pour my life out to see that you guys grow in the faith. But if I'm executed, I pray that I live a good death and that I defend the gospel well so that everyone knows that I've been on trial for the defense of the gospel and I have died in a manner that glorifies Jesus. This is why he says, 
whatever happens, one way or the other, now let me speak to you guys. He says, you conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. The word conduct yourselves is a very interesting word. It's actually a political word. It means to live as a citizen. To live as a citizen. To live as an exemplary, upright citizen. And he was speaking to a a Roman colonized uh, part of, 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 of the area there. Most of the people that were in Philippi were actually veterans from the Roman army that were sent into Philippi to make Philippi look like Rome. So Paul strategically uses this this colonization language, this citizenship language, and here's what he's saying. You guys are not citizens of Rome. You're not veterans of the Roman army. You guys are citizens of another country. You guys are citizens of heaven. And because of what Jesus has done, we believe that heaven has already come to earth. It has begun. That we are actually people that bring the future into the present. That's what the church is. The reality of the cross and the resurrection for us means that we get to live humanity out in a different way. The reality of being followers for Jesus for us means that we get to show the world what it really means to be human. That's who Jesus was. Jesus showed the world what it really means to be human. And we're gonna talk about that here in a little bit because the beauty of Jesus is he shows us what it means to be divine. This is who God is and this is what it really means to be human. And now as followers of Jesus, we are growing in our understanding and in our transformation of God's design of what it means to be human. That's amazing. But in addition to this, he is saying, as people who belong to heaven, you have access to the reality of heaven and you are citizens of that place so much so that when people look at your lives, they ought to get a glimpse of what heaven is. And it ought to whet their appetite and it ought to stir something inside of them to want to know where you're from. You live humanity out in a different way and you represent uh, uh, citizenship from a different place in a way that we've never seen before. So we wanna know what it is that you're about. And this is what Paul is saying. Whatever happens to me, continue to live with your allegiance to heaven and with your allegiance and your loyalty to the person of Jesus. Then, and I love this, whether I come or whether you only hear, or whether whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. Paul is making a transitional statement here. He is saying, guys, I've been your apostle in the faith, I've been your spiritual father in the faith, but we've got to move to a place that you're making decisions not based on me anymore. You are owning your faith as a people. You are owning what it means to be the church of Jesus. Because up until this point, and Paul recognizes this, you guys know what it's like, man. Kids act different when dad or mom are in the room. They just act differently. And Paul is saying, you guys have got to get to the place of self-government and you have to get to the place where you value the value systems of the kingdom of God so much that whether or not your spiritual father is present or not, you're making the right decisions. Why? Because they're the right decisions. 
because you don't just represent me, you represent the king as citizens of heaven. And he says, listen, whether I come or whether you only hear about me, conduct your lives, live your lives out in this manner of citizenship. He says, then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. What had happened here in the church of Philippi was there have been some attitudes that have crept in. There have been some divisions and differences that have crept in. And we get a little bit of a glimpse of this in chapter four. So I want us to go to chapter four, verse two and three really quickly. This isn't the entirety of the issue, but it's definitely a part of the issue. And it gives us a clue as to what Paul is addressing. Philippians four, verse two says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. This phrase here, the same mind, phroneo, is an amazing verb. And it's an amazing word in the Greek, and it's used more in Philippians, and it's used in the entirety of the New Testament. It's used about seven times, and for a little four-chapter book, guys, that's huge. And here's what he's saying. There was, there was some contention that had broken out between these two ladies. There were some uh, differences of opinion, There, there, there was some, well, I don't see things that way. There was some, well, I think things should be this way. There were some, well, I really like this, and I really like that. That's what's going on. It's just normal human church kind of stuff. We deal with it. New Life deals with it. Pulpit Rock deals with it. Vista Grande deals with it. It's just normal human church stuff. We all have our opinions. We all have our preferences. We all have our interests. We all have our desires. We all have the things that we think need to be, be um, focused on. Paul dealt with it almost in every one of the letters. And he is calling out in love two particular ladies that are the source of a lot of this contention. And this is why he says, I am pleading with you. Move yourselves into a place where you actually uh, become of the same mind in the Lord. We're gonna talk about that. Look at verse three. And he says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they... I've got to move quickly. Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. This is amazing. What he is saying is, again, along the theme of partnership, he is saying these two ladies from the very get, is that Shauna? Oh my goodness. Hello, Shauna Dinas. Good to see you. Sorry, I'm like a like squirrel. Paul is saying that these two ladies, they have been partners and companions in the furtherance of the gospel from the very beginning. So he's not, he's not speaking to these ladies in a disparaging way. He's not demeaning them. He is saying, you have been partners with me. We have walked in koinonia. We have had mutuality. We've experienced real fellowship in the Holy Spirit. You've been a strength to me. And now there's, a, there's disagreement between the two of you. Here's what Paul intuitively understood. And this is really brilliant when you get into it. Paul understood that the people of Philippi, they were, they were devoted to Jesus. That's clear throughout the entirety of the scripture. And they were devoted to Paul. But what was lacking 
was their devotion one to another. They were in partnership with Jesus. They were in partnership with Paul, but they were in disagreement and they were in contention one with another. Let's go to Philippians chapter two, verse one, and we're gonna get into the meat of this a little bit. Paul, understanding the context here and, and, and the reports that he's been getting back, most likely many scholars and historians believe that what was being addressed there between these two ladies, m- m- much like what happens nowadays, is Yoidea and Syntec actually begin to go out and they begin to create alliances. You guys know how that happens. Hey, let's have a little mops group that gets together. And in the course of conversation, we begin to share our frustrations or we begin to share our offenses or we begin to share our opinions or we get a couple of guys get together at, you know, at lunch during their lunch break and then they start thinking about, hey, what'd you really think about what happened there? And they start sharing their preferences and they start sharing their positions on matters. And before you know it, insidiously what happens is these alliances start to create within the church. And this is where you get, well, I'm of the persuasion of this, and I'm of the persuasion of this. And then before you know it, you have full-on opposition that's taking place. Paul saw this and says, we got to get to this quickly. So this is why he says, and the the whole appeal is, is, is rooted in the character and the nature of Jesus. Let's take a look at verse one. Therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from the love of the Father that's implied, and if you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, we're gonna stop right there. This could better be translated, instead of using the word if, the same Greek word can also be translated since. And and many commentators actually like uh, the rendering of the word since better than if. And what's being implied here is that Paul is saying, guys, you have received encouragement from being in Christ. You have experienced the love of the Father. And you have experienced the fellowship of the people of God in the Spirit. And because you have walked in all of these things, he's like, make my joy complete. Look at verse two. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. There's our word again. Same word in Philippians 4.3. Make, actually 4.2, make my joy complete. Now this is actually a reference and we see Paul use the word rejoice and joy all throughout Philippians. But if you remember last week in Philippians 1.18, this is when Paul says, I rejoice and I continue to rejoice. So Paul is in prison. Paul is defending the gospel in chains. Paul is keeping a Christ-centered perspective. Paul is keeping a passion for the gospel. Paul is keeping the orientation of his heart towards the cross. And in so doing, he says, I'm finding joy in the midst of this situation. But then he appeals to his family and he says, guys, here's how you can fill my joy up. Here's how you can actually make my joy overflow. Be like-minded. Be of the same heart. Have the same love and of be of the same spirit and of one mind. The phrase one mind and like-minded are actually the exact same Greek word. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that we all have to agree on the same thing? Does this mean that we all have to think exactly the same thing? Paul is appealing to them, and here's what he's appealing to them. He is essentially saying, guys, there are higher things that we can agree on. We may not agree on all the details, 
We may not agree on all the, we, we may have differences of opinions on how things are to be done, but what is the main thing that we can agree on? What is the most important thing as it relates to being a people? You know, a family analogy here is if I threw this out there to my kids and said, where do you guys want to eat tonight? I would get, I would get four different answers. And you throw Christy and me in the mix, we'd probably get six different answers. But here's the main thing. The main thing is we're going to eat some food. The main thing is, hey, how many of you guys are going to be grateful that we're going to put food in our bellies tonight? I'm going to be grateful, Dad. Oh, that's awesome because that's the main thing. We gotta find out what the main thing is. And when you throw 200 people or 2,000 people, guys, listen, when you throw 10 people in a room together, we're gonna have a hard time agreeing on everything. What we have to do is work to be like-minded on what the main thing is, on what the mission is, on what the purpose is, on what the clarity of the doctrine is. We've gotta work towards that, and it is work. It takes time and effort and energy, and we're gonna find here in a few minutes, it takes utter and complete submission. It takes the willingness to lay down our idea of how things should be done and our preferences and our interests. Another good example of this is in math. I'm gonna take you guys back here several years but, uh, you know, when you want to add a fraction together, what must you have in order to add fractions? You got to have a common denominator. And if you don't have a common denominator, you're going to run into trouble adding or subtracting fractions. And every single one of us represent a fraction. And every single one of us believe that our denominator is the right denominator and the only denominator. And what you have to do, listen, I'm, I'm going to help you guys out. This, this will affect your marriage. Because when Chrissy's got one denominator and I got another denominator and I'm like, you got you to make your denominator my denominator. It don't work. It does not work. It is a mathematical, factual, statistical reality. You cannot get into agreement with different denominators. And so we have to elevate the conversation beyond our individual interests. We have to come together and say, what is the clarity in the midst of the contention? What is clear in the midst of the thing? I don't know how this is going to end, but here's what's clear. I'm committed to you. I love you. I'm submitted to you. We want the same things for our family. We want to have a marriage that shines. And, and, and what do we need to do to bend and to bow and to break in order to get to that place where we meld our common denominators into one so we can start moving forward again. You guys with me on that? All right, so this is how this is what Paul says. He says, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the key. I'm going to show you how to do this. And it's going to be simple and hard. It's so simple. Look at verse 3. He's like, if you guys want to be a marriage that thrives, if you want to have a family that thrives, if you want to have a business that thrives, if you want to have a church without the toxicity of contention and division and strife, here's how you do it. It's so simple. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing absolutely 
nothing. And every joke that you tell and every power play that you now choose not to make and, and, and all the counsel that you give and the attitude and the disposition of your heart and the things that you choose to do or not to do. He said, this is so simple. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. In other words, he's saying, do not think more highly of yourself in the equation, in the relational equation. Do not put greater value on who you are. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This is the key to the longevity of the church. This is the key to vibrant, growing, dynamic relationships of any kind. Friendships, working relationships, marital relationships, family relationships. And guys, I'm telling you, it is impossible without the Holy Spirit. It's just utterly impossible. We are so oriented towards our own self-centered interest and needs and desires. We had Everett say this this morning. I had never thought about this before, but it makes absolute sense, you guys. He says, when you're in pain, or when you're in, and he's talking literally physical, chronic pain. He's like, it, it, is, it is so difficult. It is so difficult to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. I mean, look at verse four. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interest. He says, when you're in pain, do you know how difficult that is to not only look at my own interests? Let's talk about when you're hurting emotionally. Do you know how difficult this is when you're experiencing pain of the soul? When you're experiencing disappointment? When you're experiencing loss or sorrow or trouble or grief? Do you know how utterly impossible it is to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others? Do you know how difficult it is when you're not in work and you're between jobs? Do you know how difficult it is to look to the interests of others? Do you know how difficult it is when you're sick and you're fighting for your life or when your marriage is experiencing uh, difficult times? Do you know how difficult it is to start praying for other marriages? But I'm here to tell you today by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, it is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God and the community of believers, but with those things, we can do the impossible. We can actually begin to think of others more highly than ourselves, and we can look to other people's interests, and I'm here to tell you, that is the key to you getting out of that situation in your life. It's the key to your ministry, it's the key to your breakthrough, it's the key to your healing. It's God, by your grace and by your power, help me to find someone else who's going through something similar or worse and help me to divest myself into them. And in so doing, you will release a flow of the power and the grace and the strength and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit on your behalf and towards somebody else. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Most division happens in relationships, in businesses, and in churches because one person or one group of people or one party of people double down and lock down on what their own interest is. So this is what, this is what Paul says, verse five. He says, here, here's, here, here we're gonna make the transition. The way that you can do this is because Jesus has shown us how to do it. Jesus has given us the ultimate example of what it means to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
He has given us the ultimate example of how to, out of humility, consider others better than himself. He has given us the ultimate example of how to do nothing out of his own interest, but to look also to the interests of others. And this is why he says in verse five, have this attitude. And again, a lot of commentators look at this and a lot of translators look at this and they say it would be more specific because of the way grammatically this is laid out for us to translate this as such. This attitude should be amongst yourselves as a community. Now here it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. But a lot of commentators like the idea of, hey, amongst yourself as a community, adopt this very same way of thinking. And what is it? Verse six, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's a really peculiar word. It's only used once in the entire New Testament. And the word means to rob or steal or take advantage of. Some translations say it like this, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Now here's, here's what this means. Jesus knew that he was God. Jesus knew that he had he, he ontologically had equality with God. He knew that he had all the rights and all the privileges. He knew that he had the same social status. He knew that he was just as important as God the Father. And this is what, this is what Paul is saying. This is how we know who, who God is. That Jesus doesn't take all of those benefits, all those bennies, He doesn't take all of the benefits of social status and privilege and power and authority and then use them for his own means. He takes all of those and he lays them down. This is the God we serve. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 20. And if you, if you read Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, focusing on verse 28, this is what Jesus says. The Son of Man did not come to be served. I think that we, I'm meddling now, but I think we have a lot of churches that would look a lot better if a lot of the spiritual leadership in those churches didn't carry themselves in a way where they expected everybody to serve them. I think we'd have a lot of healthier marriages if we didn't have a lot of men rolling around expecting their wives to bend over hand and foot and bend over backwards to serve them. And if I might be so bold, I might even submit to our men today that with the same intensity and the same intentionality and the same purpose that you expect the people in your family to serve you, sir, you need to give them the example and you need to begin by serving them because that's what true malehood is and that's what true leadership is and that's what true spirituality is. Now we don't wanna hear that kind of stuff, do we? Jesus shows us what it looks like to be of the God DNA. He says, do you wanna know what it means to be God? I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna serve. Look at verse seven. Rather, he made himself nothing, nothing of no reputation, some translations say. He made himself nothing. He did not consider himself greater than everyone else. 
I think so many problems would just be solved if we said, you know, I'm gonna make myself nothing and not assume that I'm smarter or better or greater than you in this equation. I'm gonna assume in, in, our, in our conflict that you have something that I need. I'm going to assume in the midst of our disagreement that you have something to teach me. I'm going to assume in, in, in us working through this that you're valuable and in so doing, in so making ourselves nothing, we will experience what Paul talks about in being like-minded. I think it's interesting that in verse five, there, there's, there's this key word. The, the word is attitude in the old translation of the NIV. The new translation says this mind, this way of thinking But we have to understand, you guys, it is an orientation of our heart. And the reason why marriages and friendships and business relationships and churches break down and fall apart is because on on some level, some person or some peoples, the orientation of their heart, the hidden, insidious attitude, the way that we think was not like-minded. And I want you to think about this. If Eric and I have a disagreement and he thinks one way and I think one way, in order for us to get to like-mindedness, both of us have to change. Because here's what we do, let's be honest. We look at this and we go, yeah, I'm gonna be like-minded. We're gonna be like-minded. You need to change to agree with me. And now we're like-minded. Because clearly, clearly, obviously, obviously, I'm right and you're wrong. So as soon as you start getting on board with how wrong you are and you actually change, we can experience like-mindedness of me of the same heart and the same mind. Guys, it don't work that way. Both parties have to change and be willing to change to get to the spirit of like-mindedness. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul is actually drawing a, he's, he's drawing this parallel. I'll say this and then I'll be, I'll be, I'll be close to done. He's drawing this parallel, okay? Because in verse six and verse seven, these are, these are a couplet. And in verse six and verse seven, he is showing us how Jesus did nothing out of selfish ambition. Now remember the verse in verse three. What did Paul say? Do nothing out of self-centered thinking. Do nothing out of self-aggrandizement. Do nothing out of, out of taking yourself and elevating yourself above others. Then he shows us, this is what Jesus did. He was in the very nature of God. He had all the statuses. He laid it all down and he made himself nothing, becoming a human. And then he takes us a step further. Look with me, if you would, at verse eight. He says, and being found in appearance as a man, not only, not only, did he, did he posture his mind and his attitude? He took it a step further and he says, I'm gonna be willing to die. And then Paul qualifies this. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now he knows his, his audience so well because remember, the majority of people that have constituted and colonized Philippi are old veteran soldiers from the Roman Empire. And what he knew and what they knew is that the only people that were crucified were political insurrectionists or slaves. 
The only people in the Roman Empire that were crucified were people that were raising up, remember Barabbas, he was a political insurrectionist or slaves. So you mean to tell me that in verse six, the very God, the very Jesus, who was in equality with God, who held the same status, who held the same ontological nature, who held all the power and all the privilege, not only did he choose to lay that stuff down, but he chose to go a step further for the sake of unity in the relationship and not just have a good attitude and not have the right mindset. He actually went a step further and he laid his life down. If you want unity, something inside you is gonna have to die. If you really want unity in your family, your business, your home, your church, you gotta, you gotta get this. Something in you must die. It might be an attitude, it might be an idiosyncrasy, it might be a religious mindset, it might, it, might, it might be the fact that you think that you're always right. It might be the fact that you think that he's an absolute moron. He has nothing to offer in the situation. Something's got to die. Something must go to the cross. Something must become obedient even to death, even death on a cross if we're to experience real unity. Not the facade, not the veneer, not that we all get together and we have Holy Ghost parties and we go out and we slaughter each other with our words. I'm talking about the real unity. I'm talking about the stuff that when people look at us, they say, you're different. You're a different group of people. I'm talking about the stuff inside of us that says, we're gonna argue and fight and debate and scrap, but I'm not leaving until we get ourselves back into a place of unity. I'm gonna humble myself. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna go low for the sake of what Jesus died for. Jesus died for a church that was unified. Jesus died for a people without spot or blemish or wrinkle. And we think spot, blemish, or wrinkle is everybody's looking at pornography what if the spot blemish blemish and wrinkle is we all slaughter each other with our words and our attitudes even death on a cross even the most absolute humiliating form of stripping himself naked he says i'm going to go that far i'm going to go that far so that we can operate in a spirit of oneness and like-mindedness. That's our example. That's our example. And so the next time that we get ourselves in a conflict, particularly with church people, particularly with family members, particularly with spouses, particularly with people that have a biblical orientation, the next time we get into those moments, here's what we have to ask ourselves. Have I gone as far as Jesus? Has something inside of me died for the sake of oneness? Have I considered myself of no reputation? Am I doing anything out of selfish ambition? Am I looking more for their interest than into my own? Because if we're gut level honest, when we get into that place of gridlock, we're doubling down to protect some, something inside of us. We're protecting it. And if we're really, really honest, we're protecting it because we're afraid of something. Here's the, here's the good news. Jonathan, if you want, come on up, bud. Here's the good news. Look at verse nine. Hmm. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. 
And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Guys, we're not talking about being martyrs here. We're not talking about just, you know, having some sadistic form of of living life together. There is a glory. There is an exaltation. And we have to understand, we have to understand that when we do the difficult work through the encouragement of being in Christ, verse two, verse one, from the encouragement of being in Christ, from from the love of the Father, from the mutuality of fellowship in the Spirit, when we do the difficult work of dying to ourselves and fighting for oneness as a people, Jesus will be glorified. Jesus will be glorified. And the glory that radiates from your family and your marriage and the glory that radiates from your business relationships and the glory that radiates from from your colleagues at work and the glory that radiates from your friendships, male or female, and the glory that radiates from the church, the people of God, will exalt Jesus. Guys, I'm here to tell you it's worth it. It's worth it. I just want to reiterate this as we come to the table. And those who are ministering at the table today, I'd like to invite you to come forward right now. This is impossible. It is impossible in our sinful, fleshly, carnal, soulish man not submitted to the cross of Jesus and empowered by the Spirit of God. But praise be to Jesus. Hey, Praise be to God that he's not left us to ourselves. And praise be to God that we have a new nature. And praise be to God that we are new humans. And praise be to God that we are bringing heaven into earth. We are bringing the future into the present, the culture of heaven. We get to show the earth what the culture of heaven looks like as citizens of that kingdom. Praise be to God that because of the death, the obedience, the sacrifice, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, that thanks be to the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to dwell in our hearts, we can be like-minded. We can have the same heart and we can have the same mind for the glory of God. Would you stand with me this morning? As we come to the table today, I'm gonna invite you to think on these things and invite into your life and into your attitude and into your mindset and into your offenses and into the way that you think about people in your family or your coworkers, the judgments that you've made. I wanna ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to touch those things, to breathe on them, to shine light on them and to give you his perspective for the sake of the gospel. Come to the table this morning as we receive fresh grace and life. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that your kingdom has begun. We proclaim that you have showed us what it means to truly be human. We proclaim that the future has been brought into the present because heaven is invading earth 
And we proclaim that you are Lord of all, that Jesus at your name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Family, will you grab the hand of someone next to you as we are commissioned and sent from this place. We believe that as a kingdom family, that we are commissioned to awaken, to equip, and to send people to transform cities, regions, and nations by the power of the love of the Father, by the gospel of Jesus, by the present day ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we are sent from this place, each of us to our respective families, friends, and fields, each of us to our neighborhoods. God, I pray that we would be salt and light. I pray for creative ideas and ways, God, to love our neighbors. I pray for creative ways to have inroads and favor. God, I pray that this week that we would participate in the dotted and half circles. God, I pray that we would invite the world into our home to fellowship at our table. I pray, God, that we would have favor to be invited into the homes and the lunch tables of others. I pray for the ministry of the Spirit to be on us, to have a word in season for those that are in need around us. I pray for favor on our jobs. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that as we are sent from this place, God, that we would walk under the power of this word and the grace of your spirit and make right what needs to be made right. In Jesus' name, may the Lord bless you, Antioch. Amen.